But we wanted to make sure that we were back here to be with our family here at Hope this morning. Um, so let me pray as we, as we begin our teaching for this morning. Father, thank you. You are, you are good. Thank you that you are gracious, that you are kind. I pray that you would move on our hearts today and give us eyes to see and ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, we've been in a series uh, this summer on the life of David. We've been calling it A Journey of the Heart. And a couple of weeks ago, we crossed the timeline in David's story where he finally had become king. And if you just keep reading the stories, there's some interesting stories, but the next five chapters or so are pretty much him establishing his kingdom and all these battles he fought and people he's destroying, and, and which is worth a whole sermon series itself, I think, to go through some of those questions. But we're going to move to kind of the next major story in the life of King David. And we're going to pick up his story. Um, he's the established king of Israel. He, at this place where we're picking up the story this week, he's at a high point in his reign. It seems like his success has made him unstoppable. But before we go into this story, this episode in the life of David, this journey of the heart, I want to pray a prayer uh, of David's, a psalm that David wrote to set the tone for this message. Psalm 51, David wrote, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgression and wash away my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin, for I know that my transgressions and my sin is always before me against you. And you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Amen. I want to speak to those of us today who struggle with and wrestle with sin. Um, The rest of you can go ahead and leave, so. Uh, But uh, I want to talk uh, this morning to those of us that really know what it's like to wrestle and, and struggle with what is the most destructive force that the human race has ever seen. I know probably there are some of us in the room, even when I read that psalm, prayed that prayer of David, something in you went, oh, maybe felt like you wanted to shrink down, you wanted to pull back, Um, maybe you feel exposed or defeated or crushed, and and I understand that, I know what it's like to feel that. Um, And I don't know what it is that each of you struggle with, but I know that there's something that everyone in this room struggles with. We're going to look at a story that deals mostly with sexual sin today, but, but beyond that, maybe your struggle is different. Maybe, maybe there's words that come out of your mouth that cut people, angry words or bitter words or, or sarcasm that just wound somebody, stabbing them in the heart. And after you say those things, a lot of times you just oh, wish that you hadn't, that you could take them back. If you're like me, sometimes when you say those things, I wish I could just even just cut out my tongue <laughs> if I could <clears throat> never say those things again. Um, or, or maybe you're somebody that wrestles with 
arrogance or judgmentalism. And then you look and see these people that are so loving, and you think, I wish I could be more loving like, like them. And you wonder, well, will you ever? <laughs> uh, or maybe for you, your life is caught up in a web of deception, and there's been such a long series of untruth that you hardly know what truth is anymore. Seems to be a lot of that going around. Maybe, maybe if you were to look in your heart right now, you feel this kind of coldness toward God. You don't want it to be that way. You want to feel alive and tender towards God, but maybe there's something that's happened to you or maybe there's something that you've done that's just dogging you, wounding you, haunting you. And those are just a few things. That little list, by the way, didn't just come to me out of thin air. I've actually struggled with each of those things at different times in my life and a couple of them more recently. And even in the past couple of weeks. Um, it's been a couple of weeks because last week it was just Heidi and she's wonderful, so none of that's a problem when it's just the two of us, right? So when the rest of you are around, no. <laughs> You'll have to ask her. She's working with the kids, see if, see if any of that happened last week with the two of us. But, but um, the first one I mentioned, angry, sarcastic, bitter words. I did speak words like that in the last couple of weeks. Um, recognizing an arrogant, judgmental, critical spirit. Yeah, I can think of a specific place where I made an idiot out of myself in front of people that I love and respect by acting that way recently. And when I did, I thought of a friend of mine here at Hope and thought, I wish I could be more like them. They don't seem to have trouble with that one. Will I ever be free of that stuff? Will I ever grow up? I can think at times in my life where I've tried to, you know, shade the truth, which is a crappy way of saying I lied, right? Um, but, you know, and then had to own up to it and face people, and it's embarrassing and very humbling to have to own that stuff. Um, I've had some moments this, this summer where I just felt worn down, discouraged, criticized, and for at least a few days, my heart just started to feel cold toward God for a little stretch, so I'm telling you that because those of you who are struggling right now, I'm with you. Like, I struggle too. And the story that we're going to look at in the life of David today comes at a really good time in my spiritual journey. It's my prayer that it'll be real timely for you as well. Because as painful a story as this is, and we're going to take two weeks to tell this story, at least two weeks, um, there's an amazing grace at the end of it. But I want to talk with those of us this morning who wrestle with sin, because it's a serious thing. It's the most destructive force that has ever entered the world. It's more destructive by far than, than even death itself. There's nothing more serious, um, nothing that can damage us in our hearts more than the brokenness, the, the rebellion from God that, that the Bible calls sin. And I'm going to talk today about how that played out in the life of David. And ironically enough, I mean, if you've been with us in this series, and, or if you know the story of David, ironically enough, this is a man who was called a man after God's own heart. But today's story, the story of David and Bathsheba, is probably the second most famous story in the life of David right behind David and Goliath. So you look at this story, and if you know this story, and I'll get into it in a moment, but if you know the story of David and Bathsheba, I think the first question that comes up for a lot of us that have been in the church or, or even Christians for a while is, you go, how could David allow this thing to happen? Like, I mean, on one side, you're like, we know people openly reject God in blatant ways. There's no big shock. That happens all the time. 
But this is David, right? Remember the stories we've been telling of him this, this summer? This is the same David who loved God his whole life long. When, when he was just a little boy, shepherding the sheep, a lion or a bear would come against him, and he knew God was with him. And then a little bit older, he had the courage when the rest of the army of Israel was running in fear, all these grown men, and he was still just a teenage boy, he, he, he didn't run from Goliath. He was not afraid like the others were afraid. David had courage to face Goliath, to defeat Goliath, and it happened because he experienced the power of God flowing through his life at a very young age. Like it's that David, right? It's that same David. You think the stories that we told, right? This is the same David we're going to talk about today that when he was older and he was on the run being hunted by King Saul for 10 to 15 years, he had a chance to kill Saul in a cave, would have got him out of his own wilderness and cave and running. He could have killed King Saul, but he was so submitted to God, he trusted God and didn't kill Saul because he wanted to obey and honor and trust God, it's the same David that we looked at just a few weeks ago that, that loved God so much that, that he wrote psalm after psalm. Our book of prayer today, many of those psalms are written by him. He knew how to pour out his heart. He knew how to pour out his prayers, his, his prayers of hope, his, his, his prayers of thankfulness, even his prayers of rage. He trusted his relationship with God that much that this same David we're going to look at today is that same David, the same David that when we left off two weeks ago, Loved God so much that when the Ark of the Covenant, which represented the presence of God, when it finally came back into Jerusalem, he was so overjoyed that filled that just he was filled and couldn't help himself, and he danced unashamed and undignified before God, not caring what anyone else thought of his worship. This is that same David, a man after God's own heart. But if you know this story, this is. The same David who, in this story, he's guilty of lust and coveting and deceit. He becomes an adulterer and eventually a murderer. And for a lot of us, the question is like, like how could this happen? How could this happen? And I want to turn that question around, actually, just a little bit. Um, and pose it like this. Instead of how could this happen, let, let, let me ask this. Who in this room? is so convinced that we are so much more spiritual than David that what happened to him could not happen to any one of us. Like, who is that spiritual that we could look down on him? See, I think this story brings us this really hard truth that we don't like to face or talk about, especially in a lot of churches, and that's that every human being, every one of us, lives in a fallen world still, and we will wrestle with that fallenness, all of us, until the day that we die. It's a serious struggle. It's my struggle. It's your struggle. And in churches, you know, sometimes we like to divide sin into two categories, right? We don't talk about it like this, but, but sometimes we divide sin, you know, there's acceptable sins over here, right? And then there's scandalous sins over here. That's how we tend to think of it, but God doesn't see it that way. Like, he just sees it as sin. And I don't know about you, but personally, the longer I'm a follower of Jesus the more I see the things in me that are broken that don't align with how God created me to live and be, I see this thing that Apostle Paul called the flesh rearing its ugly head in my own life. And the truth is, sometimes I sin and sometimes I don't. 
But when I don't sin, it's not because I'm so spiritual, right? Often I think the reason that I haven't engaged in some big scandalous sin when I had the opportunity was because I didn't think I could get away with it. That's right? But David, he was the king. He could get away with it, right? Or at least he thought he could. And that's a real dangerous place for anybody to be in. In fact, we've seen that in the church world uh, right now, right today, haven't we? All through the world from scandals in the Catholic church that have come up again. Um, Our brothers and sisters who are Catholic having to deal with the fallout of hiddenness and people thinking they were in positions of power that could hide or get away with it. Um, To our evangelical world where the guy who basically invented the megachurch has recently been exposed um, because we think we can get away with it. And by the way, next week or two, I want to talk about the kind of church that we are here at Hope and our commitment as pastors and leaders and how we want to shine a light on that stuff and make sure this is a safe place, a safe church, and let you know of our commitment in that way. See, because I think there's this tendency in the church to underestimate the power of the flesh, which is why Paul said to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 10, if you think you are standing strong, be careful, for you too may fall into the same sin. Right? He's saying, those of us that think that we're really strong, we're not vulnerable, may in fact be the ones who are the most vulnerable at all. So he's saying, beware of you, right? Your sin, not the person sitting next to you, And in our family here at Hope Covenant, there is simply no room for pride or complacency or judgmentalism, not here. I think it's worth reminding all of us in the room here that it's our goal as a church, um, well, I should say our goal as a church is not just to allow perfect people to walk through the doors, right? That's not our goal. We're so convinced of it, it's on our sign out front, right? And if we mean what we say we mean on that sign, and I know we do, If we mean it, then our goal, one of our goals is to reach the most fallen, messed up, mixed up, out of control sinners in the valley of the sun. And if, by the way, if you look around this room, I think we're doing a pretty good job, right? Just look at each other. But but I really hope we do reach those kinds of people, Um, people just like me and people just like you. See, no perfect people allowed means no perfect pastors either, right? All right, hang on, try break. You see, no perfect people allowed means no perfect pastors either, right? Okay, thank you, this side of the room. Thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you. But this is a story of one such struggler, and I want to walk through this episode because I think there's some things that help us recognize what's going on in our life and in our struggles as well. Because in this story, David will come to a fork in the road several times, and we'll watch him just blow past the stop signs. And every time that he blew past the stop signs, took the wrong fork in the road, things got worse. So if you have your Bible, it'll be on the screen otherwise, but you can turn to 2 Samuel 11. This story takes place in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. We'll just make our way through the text as we go through the story. And we're just going to start by reading the first five verses of this episode, which will bring us to the first crossroad, that first intersection, 2 Samuel 11, verse 1. In the spring... At the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out 
with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed, walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. See, that's the beginning of this story. And and this is the first crossroads in the first verse. Um, It's what John Orberg likes to call the spiritual drift factor. David comes to this crossroads when the spiritual drift factor had entered his life. And we see it there in that first verse where it says, The king's army all went off to war, but David remained in Jerusalem. See, the writer of this passage makes it really clear that this is what kings do. Like at that time of the year, kings go off to war, right? It's just how like the Cubs and, and half of Major League Baseball shows up here in the valley to get ready for the season for spring training, right? That's just what you do. And back then, this is what you did. That was the time of year the battles would get fought. That was what it meant to be a king. In fact, if we look early into 1 Samuel, the Israelites had said to King Saul, their first king, when he was chosen, they wanted a king who would, quote, lead they would go before us and lead us into battle. And so Saul had done that, and, and now David had always done that. But this year, David thought to himself, I don't want to go. I'm the king. I don't have to go. Let him go without me. And most scholars think that there's something significant going on to here that the writer is trying to clue us into in this story, and we can kind of read between the lines. It's generally believed that David's about 50 years old or so at this time, so he's not an old man yet. Um, And since I'll be 50 in like a year, that's, yeah, he's not an old man yet, right? All you 20-somethings and 30-somethings are like, dude, that's old, yeah. Um, So he's about 50. He's not an old yet, but he's he's not the golden boy anymore either, right? You know, women didn't look at him the way they used to. Um, Maybe he started using some Rogaine or he said, oh, you know, told himself, I'm going to work out a little bit more, you know, get a jogging track installed around the palace. Um, He didn't tell anybody, but he had a little Geritol added to the royal diet, does Geritol even exist, by the way? Does anybody? Yeah. But what, what did he want at this part of his life? I think he didn't know. Like, he didn't know. I think maybe he wanted to feel young. He wanted to feel alive. He wanted to feel vital. He was restless. He was lonely. And I think he was a little bored. So he decides, I'm staying home. And it doesn't look like he talked to God about this idea of staying home either. You know, I want to pause here for a moment and just talk to my brothers in the room. Just to talk to the men for just a moment. And ask you, guys, where's the adventure of your life? Is it in, you know, sports? You know, playing excessively or always watching? There's a lot of golf and softball widows. There's guys that are, you know watching ESPN all weekend, right? They're watching ESPN and ESPN2. They're watching one while they tape the other. And um, that's the adventure for some guys. That's it. That's all they got. Or, or others, guys, that they just, their adventure is they're going to trade stocks online compulsively. And that's the biggest adventure that a man has. But men, a question for us is, what have you done with your deep, God-giving, God-given urge and yearning for adventure. 
John Eldridge makes a pretty good case when he says, every man needs an adventure. It's written into their soul by God. So it's a question worth asking. Men, where is the adventure in your life? Because the truth is, many men, most men are bored. Psychologists that work with men who have had affairs, they hear this all the time, right? And they say that men don't have affairs out of lust. The primary reason is not for sex. It's not for love. It's for the adventure. Oftentimes, many of those psychologists will say, if a man doesn't have what his soul desires, some sort of great adventure to give his life to, he'll go find it somewhere else, or he'll just go numb. Which, by the way, does not excuse any of this at all. It's just a reminder, men and women, to take care of your souls in healthy ways so that, so that sexual stuff doesn't have so much power to take you down. And so I'll tell you what I think David's real problem was here was in this spiritual drift factor. If we flip ahead to chapter 12, we'll get more into this story next week. But 2 Samuel 12, 7, about halfway through the verse, the first phrase, uh, the prophet Nathan is talking to David after David's been caught and says this. David, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I think this is really sad. This is what God says to David. David, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if all of this had been too little, God says, I would have given you more. I mean, God says to David, he's saying, I've had my eye on you your whole life long, and I love you. I want the best for you. I've given you so much. And David, if this hadn't been enough, I would have given you more. So why didn't you come to me? David, why didn't you ask my, why didn't you talk to me? And I think about how often through history, God has said that to us, his children. Like, if all of this had been too little, I would have given you more. See, see, if more is what it takes, though, to make the human heart content, God would. He'd just keep giving us more. But, of course, what we know is that more doesn't usually do it, does it? See, I think that part of David's problem here is that he didn't trust that God really, really, really had his best interest at heart. He did not trust that God was that good. Like, David probably knew that he needed to do what's right. He knew that purity is a good thing, that he needed to walk that straight and narrow path. But inside of him was this part that said, well, if I do that, if I abandon myself to God like that and say no to this, I'm I'm missing out. And so he decides that he can't trust God to have his best interests at heart. So David thought, as many of us do at a truly deep level, David thought that really when it comes down to it, I'm just going to have to look out for myself. (laughs) I mean, I can't trust that if I radically and totally abandon myself to God, that he will take care of me and my deepest needs. Like, I think that's a lot of what's behind so much of our human sin and choices. Like, we don't really trust that God is good, and that he's saying to us, all of this I've given to you, and if that was too little, I would give you more. Like, I wonder what would have happened if David had spent time right there alone with God, this God who waits to bless and to give, if he would have done some self-examination to wonder, what is this drift factor at work in me? Why, Why am I so lonely and bored? 
I mean, maybe, maybe he needed a new challenge. Maybe this, <clears throat> maybe this fear of aging and, and of death had crept into his life, and, and, and that meant that he needed a deeper experience of God's love for him. But he doesn't do that. He just stays home. He drifts. And I just want to pause for a moment at this point in the story because I think that there are some of us right here in the room who are at that same crossroads in your life. Maybe you're a little restless, a little bored, and if any of us are at that crossroads right now, I just want to point out that's a dangerous place to be. In this moment, that's a danger, dangerous place to be because in that place, often our motivation to obey God or serve God or even just trust God, our motivation's low and getting lower. And so those of us that are in that kind of place, maybe we're not sure why, but there's this drift factor at work in our lives, and again, it's just a dangerous place to be. And so I want to ask you, and I want to ask myself this question. When we're in that place, will we take the time to go to God and pour out our heart? When we're in that place, will, will you and I trust that God knows enough and cares enough to have our best interests at heart? Will we go to God and say, God, I'm, I'm a little lonely right now, or I'm in some pain for this reason, or confused about this, or I am tired of living in this stinking cave, or whatever it is for you, right? But God, I'm going to hold close to you. I'm going to trust that there's a new and good season ahead of me at some point, whatever circumstances I'm going through right now, I'm going to trust you, Jesus. But David doesn't do that here, does he? He just drifts. And, and because he's home, the writer says he gets out of bed late one afternoon. He sees a woman bathing on the roof. And it says that she was very beautiful. And then notice verse 3. And David sent someone to find out about her. Now, you might want to note or mark that word sent. We'll talk more about it next week. But Eugene Peterson notes that, that this sent word is a really key word in this story. I mean, this story, by the way, is really artfully and skillfully told. And this word sent is used a number of times. And we'll kind of track of it through this whole story. We'll track that word. Mostly it's used of, of David. Like, it's used to refer to how David plays God in people's lives to get what he wants. He's the king, so he abuses his power here. He sends here. He sends there. So it's used here because David sends out for information about this woman. And now David has drifted from temptation to action and starts making plans. And by the way here, sometimes when we read this story, people wonder, like, well, isn't this partly Bathsheba's fault in the story? Like, how come she's taking a bath outside and that kind of thing, right? But there's nothing, right? There's nothing in the text to indict her. In fact, I get really irritated, especially when I hear men excuse their bad behavior towards women or excuse lust because of how a woman was, was dressed. Do you ever hear those kinds of comments? It is ridiculous. It's blame shifting is what it is. Like each one of us is responsible for our actions. Like it's called self-control, right? Here's a definition for self-control. I tell myself what to do and then I listen to myself, right? Self-control, okay? So no one, quote, makes us lust, right? Now, when Heidi and I were talking about this, she pointed out, um, you know, hey, would it be wise for other people to be mindful in how they dress and to be modest? Yes, it would. But this is not about telling somebody else how they need to act in order to make sure you don't have to use any self-control, okay? This is about managing our own 
itself, it's self-control. And there's nothing in the text here that indicts Bathsheba. And culturally, in those days, what would happen is, is the water would be collected into barrels, uh, rain barrels, and, and they'd warm up during the day. And so by late afternoon, they would be warmest, and the men would be away. It's just kind of a customary deal. And so she was taking a bath like was done. Now, notice in the text, she's treated like an object by David in this story, because there's no mention of how she feels. There's no mention of what she says or what's said to her. She is just something to be used by David in this story, used to, you know, maybe solve his boredom problem, maybe take away his feelings of loneliness for a moment. And friends, when we give ourselves permission to sin, we begin to use other people like that. People become objects to be used. So David sends for information. And then verse 3, we come to another crossroad here. The first was that spiritual drift factor, but the second crossroad, David sends someone to find out about her. And notice what happens. It says, the man, it's a servant of David's, the man said, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife, notice this, of Uriah the Hittite? It's kind of a subtle thing, but the crossroads here, David's given a spiritual warning light, right? He has a specific temptation, but then this warning light here goes off for him. It's that phrase, the wife of Uriah the Hittite, which is significant because generally in the Old Testament, in genealogies, they don't mention someone's spouse. They might talk about their ancestors, but not about a spouse, but the servant does it here. Most likely, that servant knows what's going on in David's mind, and this is really a gutsy thing to do, especially for the servant to say to the king, isn't this Bathsheba, he says, the daughter of Eliam? And David, isn't this Bathsheba the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Like, David, this is somebody's wife. This is somebody's daughter. Be careful, David. She's not an object. She's a person. And this is the crossroads, right, where we have a little inner voice or maybe a message from someone close to us um, that says, hey, 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 slow down before you give yourself permission to do wrong. And it's a warning light that goes off. And when that warning light goes off, what we need to kind of program ourselves to do is, oh, wait, okay, stop. Be careful. Stop and think. That's the warning light at this crossroads. And we have warning lights, right, in our lives, don't we? You know? We come to a traffic light. There's, there's generally three colors. Two of the colors are very straightforward. Red means, oh, you guys are good. Green means... Yeah, and, and then there's yellow, right? It's the most interesting and hazy of the three colors, isn't it? Interesting to watch how people respond when they see that color yellow in a light, right? Some people hit the brake and go real slow. Some people hit the accelerator and then they just blow right through it. So tell on the person next to you, not yourself here, how many of your spouses or friends that are here with you today, um, when they see the yellow, they, they slow down on the street lights. Nobody's fast. Oh, a couple of you. Okay, that's good. How many of you, the person you're riding with, when they hit the Excel, they hit it, right? Yellow, they speed up? Yeah, yeah. I might belong to that category too. Um, Well, here, David's being sent a warning signal by God. Isn't this Bathsheba? Isn't it someone's daughter, someone's wife? She's not an object. She's a person. And if David was at a good place with God, this would have stopped him in his tracks. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. What am I thinking? What am I doing? This is... A person made in the image of God. 
And by the way, it doesn't matter if this is a live person we're talking about or a pornographic image. It's deeply damaging either way to both of you. But thinking here is the last thing that David wants to do. He hits the accelerator. He floors it. He goes right through the stoplight. And then he sends again. Verse 4, then David sent messengers to get her. We're going to pause right here at this story because in a room this size, I think that there are people that are at this stoplight. And if you or I are at this stoplight, we're not just drifting. Like a, a very specific temptation has taken form in your mind and maybe you haven't crossed many or even any lines yet. But for some of us, maybe you're about to. And maybe this morning God brought you here today as a warning sign. Just to ask you, will you stop (laughs) and think about what the consequences would be if you cross this next line? A few years ago, I heard someone speak on the subject of sexuality and temptation, and I can't remember who it was, but this was probably 20 years ago, and this thought has stuck with me for years. He, He said something like, when strong sexual temptation comes at you and you begin to entertain the thoughts, you feel like it's pressing in strong and you're not going to be able to stop thinking about it, he said, then, then, then don't. Don't stop at entertaining the fantasy. Think about the aftermath. Like, imagine what happens if you were to go through with doing this, if you were to mishandle your sexuality. Like, what are the consequences to giving in? What happens after you speed through that stoplight? And so I've frequently asked myself that question over the last couple decades. What are the consequences of mishandling this part of my life? And specifically, uh, with mishandling sex, a few things that have occurred to me if I were to give in to that. Here's one. Um, If I were to give in, sexual sin disturbs my worship and prayer, my connection with God. It leaves me with feelings of guilt and shame. If I were to engage in acting out sexual sin or in pornography, it would damage intimacy with the person I most want to love, my wife, Heidi. Uh, Another one is mishandling this area of my life could hamper or destroy the ministry that God has called me to, and I've seen that firsthand in the lives of so many pastors and even ministry people I've been close to, and we're seeing it happen on large scales right now. If I fell into sexual sin, another one here, it could pass on a legacy in my family that would damage my son Noah, who I love so much. And if I were to do that, it would cripple, it could cripple my marriage to Heidi, who is my best friend and who I love. Giving into that kind of sin could also cause me to become the kind of person who thinks I can get away with it, so I'm going to hide, and then I'd become a phony, which I can't stand seeing in me or others, and I never want to be a fake, and so many more consequences. But when I think about those thoughts, I get real clear on the kind of man that I want to be and the kind of man that I don't want to be, and it helps me to hit the brakes. And I don't hit the brakes because, well, there's a rule out there or because somebody said, hey, 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 no, 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 don't do that. Like at this point in my life, it's because I know from the core of my being, the kind of man I want to be. I know who God has created each one of us to be and says we are and invites us into. 
So how about you? That might be a question worth spending some time with this week. What kind of man do you want to be? What kind of woman do you want to be? In our next series that we're going to do, if we ever finish this one, <laughs> um, is going to be it's going to be about identity and who God says we are. And we want to live consistently with who he sees us to be. Not, not just sinners who grovel and fail and blow it. He sees us as saints, as people who are whole and loved and called. See, the truest thing about you, even if you struggle with sexual addiction, the truest thing about you is not that you are a lustful man or a lustful woman. No, the truest thing about you is what God says about you. And so we can live into that instead of into these other struggles and lies, and it will begin to change who we are. And so whatever the area of your life where you struggle, sex, money, gossip, complaining, judging, being self-centered, whatever area... I want us this week to be courageous enough to get alone with God and go real deep. To pray that prayer of David's, search me and know me, O God. I want each of us here in the Hope family to get real clear on this because nobody's going to do this for you, okay? Your parents aren't going to do it. Your spouse isn't going to do it. Your kids aren't going to do it. Your pastor's not going to do it. Your small group leader's not going to do it. This is you. So you have to get real clear on what you believe and value to the core of your being and then make the choice to live that out and to get help if you are stuck or caught because this is real life, friends. Worship team, I'm going to ask you to come. And we'll pick up this story next week. And there's good news coming. There's amazing grace in this story. But I don't want us to go home today feeling defeated by sin. So I want to take a holy moment where we hit the brakes, where we pause, where we listen for what God might be speaking to us. Because even though we all have strayed sexually, whether in word or deed or thought, we can trust that God's forgiveness is readily available to all of us who simply ask for it. And I also want to say this, like, hear me. <laughs> Sexual straying is not the unpardonable sin. God offers graciously, he offers to free us and forgiveness when we humbly turn to him in repentance. We confess our wrongdoing. So even if this is something you've struggled with for years, maybe your whole life long, and maybe it's going to keep being a struggle, but, but I want you to pour that out to God. And maybe someone here, you're in real deep and you just can't see a way out. I want you to pour that out to God. Maybe you're kind of coasting up to the intersection right now and you see where you could make some choices. You got to choose, am I going to hit the brakes or am I going to accelerate? Pour that situation out to God. Now our world is busy and loud and insane, so we're just going to take a couple minutes where, where the band plays quietly behind us. Um, we're going to give you a minute here to just, God, search and know my heart. So spend a moment, and then we're going to close with a song or two to give voice to our deepest heart's desire. So just take this moment here between you and God.